All right, hello and welcome to Realcom's third webinar in our next gen smart building series that started back in July. I'm Chuck Nicewanger, president of NiceNets Consulting, your Realcom host for today's webinar called Digital Twins, Artificial Intelligence and More. Thank you for tuning in to the live session or viewing this as a recording. The format for this webinar is a dynamic panel discussion with fewer slides and more interactive discussions. We always appreciate your feedback. So let us know what you like about what you're hearing. And we always find that very, very useful. Before we get started, uh, let me go over a few housekeeping items that'll help you have a great webinar experience. Again, thank you to our live attendees. We do encourage you to use the Q&A box during the webinar. It's somewhere on your screen, probably bottom left, to submit questions or comments. It's always better when you're an active participant. We love hearing from you. And we'll try to get to all the questions, but if they don't get answered during the webinar, we will follow up with you once the event has concluded. In the handout section, you'll find more detailed bio information about all our panelists and today's slides deck, along with those from the two previous sessions in the Next Gen Smart Building series. For the best webinar experience, we do recommend closing out any other internet applications, especially streaming videos. You won't get any useful digital twin and artificial intelligence information watching Love, Death, and Robots on Netflix. Trust me with that, stick with us, and you'll learn a lot more. If you are experiencing technical issues, however, with connectivity, sound, video quality, the best thing to do is to disconnect and then click on the webinar link again and reconnect. You can also email ian at ithompson, that's I-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, at realcom.com for help during the event, but don't worry, you won't miss anything because you will receive a link to the recording of the webinar later today. This educational webinar is spo sponsored and supported by our outstanding tech partners and sponsors. 5Q is uh, commercial real estate and technology experts. 5Q understands the intricacies and inner workings of commercial real estate's legacy technology systems, and they provide technology and cybersecurity management in all CRE sectors. Let's take a quick video of what they're offering today. What makes 5Q unique is that our team of professionals have a deep understanding of this commercial real estate industry and all the clients that we serve in all property types from retail to multifamily to office and industrial. Our people also have deep knowledge in information technology and in operational technology at the property level. That means at all devices in a building, we're very familiar with how to secure those devices how to set up those devices so that they are secure right from the start. We work with all aspects of our clients' executive team, IT team, and cybersecurity team to make sure that they have the proper layers of defense for the critical assets that they're trying to protect. All right, and we also have Prescriptive Data's Adaptive Control System, Nantum OS, that enables buildings to hit their ESG goals by optimizing operational performance while saving energy, reducing carbon emissions, and lowering costs without sacrificing occupant health or comfort. Let me show you this video. 
every building has a story to tell. What is your building saying and who's listening? A building can be seen as a living thing. It consumes, breathes, circulates, senses, and produces waste. Buildings are comprised of different and complex subsystems like elevators, security, fire safety, and HVAC that generate a ton of data. What are you doing with your data? What if you could visualize all of your data on an integrated mobile platform? What if today's data could prescribe and predict actions for tomorrow? What if you had situational awareness that could monetize these optimizations in real time? Your building has always had a heart in the engine room, but what if it had a brain? Introducing Nantum, the world's first operating system for the built environment. The new brain for your building. And we are grateful for all the contributions by these vendors to our industry, to Realcom, and to helping us educate our viewers in sessions like these. I've recommended the team at 5Q to my clients for managed services, building assessments, and cybersecurity, and Prescriptive Data's building operating system can make a real difference in your NOI equation. So be sure to include both of these companies in your vendor selection process. Our moderator today is Charles Whiteley. He's VP, Global Digital Leader, Buildings and Places at ACOM. Welcome, Charles. Making sure thanks, you can Kevin. hear me. Yeah, thanks, right. Apologies for All that. All right, we're good. Uh, I was, well, welcome, and, and Charles, thanks again for moderating for us. You got a terrific panel. One thing I want to do, though, that is sometimes very helpful, is let's uh, get our audience primed now by uh, taking a quick poll to see who's in the live audience. So if you don't mind, uh, any of our live audience, click on your position or whatever is closest to your position, and that'll give us a good sense of, of who we're speaking with. So uh, Charles, I think one thing you noticed about our, our panel is just a wide range of backgrounds and specialties. And I think you know most of these people. I do, yeah, yeah, Chuck. I've had a chance to kind of meet several of them, you know, as, as being part of the Realcom community over the last several years. And I think from a kind of smart building perspective, you know, really looking out into the future of the industry um, from a from a practical application of technology perspective, we've got a really good group of folks here today. So I'm I'm really looking forward to to the conversation and. We're going to ask them some tough questions, right? So in, in my previous role at Exxon Mobil, you know, would have been good to know. I think some of the things that we're going to be talking to the panelists about today just probably would have made the, the journey a little easier. But, um, you know, lessons learned hardly and, and challengingly for, for others help help make the, the, that journey for folks on the call today hopefully a little bit easier. Right. So, all right. Let's take a quick look at the results to see who we have in our audience today. So, a good group of the at the executive level, uh, probably one of the highest that I've seen. Uh, and uh, also, if you combine the building engineers, those specific to IT, the property managers, uh, data, uh, quite a large representation of that group. And then, uh, typically, a lot of times, the largest group that I see, vendors, consultants, and other. So uh, I think that could shape the way you address some of your questions today. Yeah, absolutely, Chuck. So we'll try to tailor some of the responses and questions for, for the audience um, based on the polling, right? So, and just a remind, quick reminder to the audience to be sure to use that Q&A. You got some great resources here. Charles, I'll leave you with it and uh, have a great session. I'll come back towards the end.
Yeah, thanks, Chuck. Really appreciate it. So we'll, what we'll do is we'll go ahead and kick off. Uh, we'll, we'll do a brief introduction to the panel, and then we'll, we'll let each of the individuals come online and do kind of a proper introduction to the broader, broader group today. So very, very happy to have and, and a warm welcome to Aaron Alshert. So Aaron, Aaron's with Car Properties. Um, we've got Dean Hopkins, who's strategic advisor at Osprey. Uh, Dean was the former COO at Oxford Properties, right? And anyone that's been in the Realcom community knows, knows Dean, right? No introduction required. Um, we've got Don Oldman, who's a VP of IT at Thompson Thrift. So really excited to have Don on the call today. Welcome, Don. And then closing out the panel for today is Ali Mamani. So Ali is with Prescriptive Data, right? And I know they're doing some really interesting things. Prior to the discussion, we actually went off a tangent around comfort indices and, and things of that nature, right? So really good group. So I'll just go kind of left to right as I see y'all on the screen. We'll, we'll start alphabetically with Aaron. So Aaron, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourselves to, to the broader panel and maybe talk a little bit about your role and, and um, you know some of the things you're doing over at Car Properties. Sure. Thanks, Charles, and um, welcome. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. And just echo the comments about the quality of uh, panelists today. So uh, I'm humbled to be joining this, um, you know, this great group. So uh, I'm Aaron Alcher with Car Properties, uh, based here in Washington D.C. Car is an owner, operator, developer. Um, we're on the smaller side. We have uh, just a touch under six million square foot. Um, we have a million square foot in um, in the pipeline or in construction right now, set to deliver early next year. Uh, most notably, that's the one Congress up in Boston. Um, it's going to be a, just a magnificent trophy building uh, that we're putting together up there. Uh, come online early 2023. So, million square foot, giant class sale property, going to be the home of State Street Bank overlooking the Charles River. If you're in Boston the next time, definitely look up. You'll see it. Check us out. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and all good. We we span a um, couple markets, DC, Maryland, Virginia, Boston, and then in Austin, Texas. Um, now, my role specifically, um, I lead our uh, technology initiatives and innovation. Uh, I've been with CAR for just a touch under five years. And um, I have really been focused on CAR's big data initiatives, uh, our customer-focused applications, some IoT projects. Um, so once you start getting into you know, big data projects and all the things that touch big data, you wind up um, you know, participating with many different uh, verticals within the company, many different types of projects uh, that I wasn't expecting to be part of. So, Hopefully today I can share uh, some of those journeys about how you know an IT guy like myself was working with ops and sustainability and um, kind of building new cool things to understand really how to interpret big big data, what to do with it, uh, to make it actionable through our teams, and moving forward, how do we automate it and uh, make our business better by utilizing big data and uh, potentially digital twin to to visualize it. So that's all for awesome. me. Thanks. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it. Now, looking forward to the conversation. I know you've got a couple solid use cases to share with the broader broader group. Okay, moving moving left to right, Dean. Hit the wrong button already. Um, so thanks, uh, thanks everybody for having me. Uh, this is actually my very first event post Oxford. Um, so uh, I, I, I kind of held off until the real cow gang would have me back. Um, I spent three years at Oxford, um, 
getting uh, Oxford on its digital journey, building the teams, building the capabilities um, that would allow them to both OT, IT, um, data analytics, ESG, sort of become a, a much more digital forward real estate company around the world, $80 billion, $80 billion worth of assets across every asset class and most of the major markets in the world. So it was a fascinating three years, built an amazing team, uh, amazing strategy and lots of great use cases to share. I've now decided that the right thing to do after getting, getting Oxford on its journey is to actually help uh, lean in and help the industry uh, more widely uh, than just being able to help a single company. So I'm now stepped out and starting to work uh, more widely across vendors, advisors, um, kind of asset managers, investors to help them along their digital journeys. And so I'm really happy to be here, really excited to share, share some of what I've learned. Before Oxford, I was 27 years in tech as an entrepreneur and as an advisor. So kind of bring fuse the tech plus the, the real estate leadership. Um, and I see huge, huge, huge possibilities in the next decade in, in real estate. So I've decided to sort of make my next chapter about that. I'm happy to be here. Awesome, Dean. And Oxford's loss is the industry's gain, right? So so thanks, thanks for kind of sharing that. Really appreciate it. Don, how about yourself? Yeah, hi everybody. My name is Don Oldham, um, VP of IT at Thompson Thrift. We're a national developer of multifamily, commercial, uh, retail properties, and industrial. Uh, I've been here two weeks, so I'm the new head of their IT department, so I'm still getting settled here, but I'm coming to Thompson Thrift from uh, Duke Realty, who was recently acquired by uh, Prologis. It's been about 25 years at Duke Realty, and my latest role at Duke was around um, innovate, innovative technologies, and some of that involved AI from a practical perspective. Uh, using what I like to call AI as a service um, <clears throat> to start with artifacts to uh, automate processes within the business. So, so looking forward to sharing a little bit about those experiences today and learning from the rest of the panel. Um, lots of fun stuff in this this subject area. So, awesome. Thanks, Don. And, and last but not least, Ali. Yes. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, leading research team at Prescriptive Data. So we watched a good video from our uh, company and our team. So um, about me, uh, I was like a five years, six years at Prescriptive Data. Uh, I'm mostly involved in uh, implementing uh, machine learning and AI technologies in uh, making building, managing of the building smarter and uh, more robust, more re more reliable. And uh, before prescriptive data, I uh, was at Columbia University, and I spent most of my time in uh, academia, uh, having PhD in mechanical engineering, being involved in uh, data science and artificial intelligence group at Columbia University, and uh, being involved in a lot of uh, um, government-funded projects in like past 10 years. And I'm very happy to be part of this group, and I hope I can uh, uh, I be uh, positive, provide some positive input to this. Awesome. Thanks, Ali. Really appreciate it, right? And probably a big difference between academia and kind of the private sector, right? Um, very different, yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably a story to have over here at Cortec. Absolutely. All right. So, um, yeah, let's just let's just go ahead and dive in, right? So we've got a series of questions for for those kind of listening in. You know, you you've got digital twins, AI, and stuff, right? So there's a lot of different ways that this conversation can go. So we've tried to think about kind of a, a set of questions for our panels that'll start kind of 
upfront talking about some of, some of the hoops you got to jump through to garner the investment to even start this journey, right? So what does that kind of look like? And then we, we'll, we'll, we'll go all the way through kind of the continuum, kind of finishing up with, with kind of questions around the types of teams that you need to build and or develop and have in place to kind of support things after the fact, right? Because um, it's not a one and done uh, for sure. So um, first question is selling the, selling the value prop for a digital twin investment internally, right? So I think we've got some good folks on the panel that have had to go through this exercise, right? So how did you get your leadership to pull the trigger? How, how did you garner that investment? You know, what have you defined as a digital twin in your organization? So, so just kind of some of those starting points. So let, let's start with, let's start with Dean, right? So, um, so Dean, back, back to the question, right? How did you initially sell that value prop for digital twin while you were over at Oxford? And um, how'd you get your leadership to kind of buy in, allocate funding? And that's the first step in getting started, right? Hundred percent, and and actually learned a, a ton along the way about how to best engage with the people that um, are going to be the um, sort of the end users, the people that are going to be getting the benefit from it. And I think the first thing we learned was not to talk about it as a digital twin, um, and actually more to talk about it in terms of the the impact and the value, and um, and to take people on a journey. So we actually started the whole process um, with proof of concept, which we kind of held back from the users. We sort of said, you know what, we actually just have to make sure that this technology actually works and actually has economics that'll be reasonable. So we spent about a year actually testing all the different permutations of what people might consider a digital twin, trying to do what I call the most minimum viable twin we could. So at the, the least degree of expression, the least detail um, that we could do to sort of figure out that the technology would work and wouldn't cost us a million dollars and take us way too long to do. And once we got comfortable that the, the technology actually worked, we then started what we called a proof of value, where we picked very narrow use cases and started working with a very small subset of users to say, let's show you what the economics of this look like. And without you know, boring them with the technology. And we showed that this paid back multiple times what they, the small investment that it would take to, to get rolling with these minimum viable twins. And that started the light bulbs going off because we then showed these minimum viable twins because I view actual twins not as the all singing, all dancing, 3D ex visual expression of a building, but much more of an innovation surface uh, that is all about how to model a building and connect it to kind of live data emulating from the, uh, uh, you know, emanating from the building. So you actually have a current view that then you can use to um, create simulations forward to, to test uh, management decisions, which is actually the, the real definition of a twin. If you go back and look at how it was invented and where it was invented. And so we didn't actually fuss too much about the visual expression. We just showed them what the decision outcomes could be. And suddenly the, the operators, but more interestingly, the asset managers. In our world, the asset managers really control the the um, where the uh, where the dollars came from. And so we actually realized we didn't have to win over the the operators as much because we were showing them how to do their jobs, you know, with less work. It was the asset managers who controlled the purse strings, and we had to make it relevant for them. So what we did is we picked not we didn't do it with honey. We did a little bit with vinegar. Um, we sort of said, here's a threat vector. Here's a, here's an area where you got us. You know, there's a, 
a lot of information you need to uh, rely upon, which you don't have. And it was a lot of the ESG use cases. So a lot of the ESG use cases, we just couldn't get to where we needed to go with the current apparatus. And so we, by, by combining all those things, proof of concept, proof of value, a little bit of threat and risk, and focusing on who the audience was that we really needed to serve, all of those things together with um, not really showcasing the technology or talking about it in terms of tech, one the day. Um, and so we got to a place where we um, had enough people call it in the first rollout that it was meaningful to do, but we also didn't try to get scale it too big too fast. So there's a lot of crawl, walk, run in this, which we learned the hard way. We tried to run, hit the brick wall, went back, started crawling again, and you know got to a place where we felt like um, we had momentum. I think it's a, still a live ball though. Like it is not by any means um, a mature technology, a well understood value proposition, or a bunch of people on the end user side who know what questions to ask to get the value out of what I call this innovation surface of the twin. So I think we're we're still in early innings. And so I guess I'd say to the audience, don't worry if you're not there yet, um, because I think the world is still evolving. The vendors are still maturing. The the techniques to use are still um, and the use cases to use a, a, a twin are still evolving very rapidly. And so there's still lots of time to sort of uh, lean in and, and get involved. Awesome. No, great, great response, Dean. And I think a lot of really cool takeaways in, in, in kind of some of the things that you shared with the, the, the attendees. Now, I, you had mentioned kind of the vendors, right, and products kind of maturing. And I think that's a great segue into Ali, right? So, Ali, you're on, you're on the sales side, right? You're on the product side. And you, you guys have built a pretty sophisticated OS that enabled use case delivery, right? So, maybe from your perspective, how have you helped clients, right, kind of make the business case for digital twin investment to, to kick off that first POC within a new a new company or a new a new partner of yours? And and how do you guys view a digital twin um, from the uh, from from the prescriptive data side of the house? Yeah. So uh, first, uh, I'm, I have a habit of explaining everything using slides. What 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 is the uh, definition of digital twin and uh, how we are using it uh, along with uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning? So uh, we the you know the digital twin has different meaning in different areas. For us, digital twin is mostly in the uh, uh, in mostly meaningful in the area of uh, intelligent control system, how we can use um, uh, fast and high fidelity um, models uh, that can be trainable, retrainable, can be calibrated during the time using the data and provide like a, a base for us to make a decision for the building in real time. So uh, if I go like uh, to very high level of uh, our understanding of what we are using in um, prescriptive data as like a architecture of uh, ML and uh, next slide please. Yeah, this is like very high level of the architecture that we put together um, to um, like um, to explain uh, the usage of AI and ML and uh, and how we can use digital twin in this uh, um, technology is uh, this combination of having um, building information model along with uh, uh, thermal models 
and then um, wrapping by uh, AI and optimizer to make a uh, useful uh, and uh, optimized decision uh, to manage the building in the real time. If for that, like a, a very refreshing the memory of the people in um, audience, if we ha we go to the next slide, we we can have three type of models. And uh, on the left right, we have white box models or very physics-based model, very computational and expensive. And uh, it, it needs a lot of information to be developed. And uh, most of the time, they are very uh, slow. So we cannot use this kind of models in uh, the process of real-time intelligent control system that we need. And we have gray box model in the middle. They are a little better in terms of accuracy, but it's still uh, they are not that ma that much fast. But in the right part, we have black box model. Black box model are uh, those models that uh, we develop using uh, machine learning technologies, and they are super fast. And uh, but the basis of these models are mostly. Uh, math and data. So, and when we have, we don't have enough data from the building, they are useless. And uh, sometimes they are not representing the physics of the building very well because uh, the, there is no base. Base is always math. So, what we did in uh, Nantum uh, in the next slide, we tried to uh, combine these uh, three types of models. So, and you can see. Uh, it is helpful for us to uh, train our machine learning technology uh, using physics-based model. And also it helps this physics-based model, the white box model helps the black box model to be a, like a base. So most of the methodology that people are using in machine learning, they are using the data like a, like a, uh, from scratch. But what, how we use uh, machine learning in uh, prescriptive data, we are using physics physics model as a basis of those machine learning models. So it means that we are using a mechanical engineering uh, uh, formulation, all those uh, thermodynamic models, thermodynamic formulation that we have, and then we are using them as a basis for machine learning. In that case, we can have more accurate models in compared to black box model, at the same time, we have very uh, fast, uh, computationally inexpensive models that we can use in the process of optimization in real time. And if we go to the next slide, so these models are are very helpful for us. Why? Because when we uh, go to where, uh, one of the buildings that we don't have any data, the base of the model is very close to the uh, real real physics of the building. So at the beginning, it helps us to provide meaningful information. And if you go to the next slide, when we have like a more data available, it is adopted. So it's, uh, yeah, we have more data available from the building. These models would be more smarter, so we can have a better decision based on this model for the building, and we can control the building in a better way. Yeah. Now, Ali, Ali, really appreciate that input. And it looks like we got stuck on that slide there. Um, not sure if, if the last slide will pop up before we transition over to Aaron, but interesting, right? So we asked the same question, what what does the digital twin mean for you and your organization? You know, the answer from Dean, very much driven by specific use cases, value generation, value creation, focus on asset managers, right? And I would assume from an asset integrity, asset risk kind of management perspective. 
when we ask Allie and kind of from a prescriptive data side of the house, it really comes down to autonomous command and control, right? And building operations. And how do you blend sophisticated components of AI and different aspects of model creation, model management to deliver on what seems like the primary use case of, you know, building automation, right? Within within the, the built environment, right? So, so super interesting and compelling. Now, Aaron, we'll we'll finish up with you on this question, right? Over at Car Properties, because I know you, you guys have kind of dabbled in this space as well. So again, kind of how did you initially sell the value prop for digital twins internally to get your pilots kind of kickstarted? What do you view or what is CAR's kind of per perspective on what a digital twin means to you or your organization? And how did you get your leadership to let you go, you know, basically play in the play in the digital twin sandbox? Sure. So um, the, you know, before we even get to uh, an initiative like a digital twin, um, you know, we had to set some kind of structure in place on how IT handles projects and things to do over here. So we have like two buckets of how we route work. So we have our traditional projects that we write in the budget every year. We go to the operating committee, we get approval for those projects. They're pretty well defined. You scope them out a year in advance. As we were kind of moving, I mean, we're a small department, small portfolio, we can move really fast. We have a lot of like skills and capabilities in house. So what we learned is we needed to have another way to do stuff that would allow us like a shorter turnaround time than waiting for OC and board, uh, board approval and stuff. So um, we developed this concept called uh, Car Innovation Labs. What Car Innovation Labs is, is uh, it's sort of a, a separate project channel that already has a pre-funded budget and bucket. And every year we can dip into the, you know, IT Labs um, budget, make that an initiative that IT can kind of like define. We can run the approvals, um, you know, more close to IT. We can define scope and you know deliver on what we think is going to be the right uh, output for the business without going through that laborious uh, effort. So to do things that are more like discovery based, like digital twin, AI, things that you, when your CFO comes to you and says, well, what is the actual return on this you know, technology investment? You can't clearly answer that because you're still in discovery, but you still need to get educated and stay ahead of the market and learn the tech and know the tech. So labs is the, the right fit for that. So that's sort of like how we've been able to kind of move quickly uh, and, you know, do the lean startup stuff uh, with new projects. So that's how we got buy-in for Digital Twin. And we did do it on a very small scale uh, and, you know, sort of really still evaluating the success, the results. Um, so how it was presented internally was um, we have, invested in and been working on this big data initiative across all of our operational data. So we have a data lake, we have a data warehouse where we collect all sorts of operational data. And we use that right now for BI and automation. Our ops team looks at you know access control and health of our uh, networks and cybersecurity and utilization of our uh, spaces and gym equipment and et cetera, et cetera. So we already sort of had that infrastructure in place and um, over the last year, we spent a ton of resources and, and effort implementing um, air quality sensors. So we partnered with Senseware. We implemented um, uh, IoT air quality sensors in all of our air handlers across the uh, portfolio. So we knew we needed 
sort of an easy and um, kind of appealing way to consume this air quality data. And we also knew we wanted to trial and test what we're calling a digital twin. So that's how we got to this project that you see in front of you, uh, where we are leveraging a platform called Resini. Uh, Resini is innately built for indoor wayfinding, where they take a scan of a like a shopping mall or shopping center, and they have um, you know a mobile app that you can basically do wayfinding through the property. But we knew that the base platform allowed us to put information inside a model, and that's really all we needed to kind of test our use case of bringing in indoor air quality data inside a digital twin, okay? So that was like our, our base assumption of what we're gonna do with this project. So what you see on the kind of lower right-hand part of that screen is a partial scan of our property on L Street. Uh, we scanned about a, um, almost 100,000 square, um, square foot at the property. Uh, we had a company come in with this like really fancy, sophisticated LiDAR camera that you kind of walk through and it takes like 360 panoramics. It also has um, uh, like it transmits some radio waves so it can get depth information and builds, builds out this um, model basically. So the model gets uploaded into the Resini platform because it's got the like web engines to render it. Um, and then we build, basically build a custom application that sits on top of the scan that allows us to present data do some like UI UX with the data that you see on those hotspots there, and then also start to use this platform to define thresholds. So this was like a base level. We did a scan, we got the scan updated, we went through the scan and said, okay, here are my sensors. And then this is the data that I'm pulling from my sensors. And based on the values of that, I wanna show, you know, on like sort of a heat map view of how my building looks. So we did this, we rolled it out, um, it was, I mean, the positives were, you know, you were able to get like a 30,000 foot view of the building and you could see based on my building, what does my temperature or humidity or CO2 or VOCs look at this high level, which is somewhat helpful. Um, where, you know, where we sort of came up short was, uh, I think there's, there has to be some evolution in the, the product suite, the performance of the browsers to be able to like, render and allow you to comfortably move through these models. If I was to zoom into this model, you'd see like a lot of pixelation, some granularity, and just some difficulty like maneuvering it where I don't think our ops or engineering teams would be comfortable with doing that. Um, however, so we, we did this as sort of a trial test. Um, we got the 30,000 foot view. We said, okay, this is cool. New way to look at data. Uh, but then we looked at the other aspects of the Resini platform, that whole wayfinding thing from a mobile perspective, and we started to bring some of this data into AR, augmented reality. So if you wanna to flip to the next slide, uh, just show you how, how that looks. Um, and what, uh, what I'm gonna show here is um, this AR application that basically works as like a lens, just like the same technology that's in your social media. <laughs> Uh, applications, but it uses the location points from the digital twin. So we have the you know AR AR lens running inside the digital twin, and in the use case I'm going to show you, I actually snapped a quick video from my phone. Um, you're walking through one of our conference centers, and you're using your phone to hover over one of our air quality sensors to actually get live reading. Uh, and what's unique about this um, is this doesn't use like any sort of 
uh, visual target for the phone. The phone just knows where you are based on the twin, uh, which was kind of cool. And, um, and we went through and designed some like uh, UI, UX around it. Uh, so I think, it, you know, let's take a look at the video, kind of walk you through. Um, again, th this was part of the labs. We were testing, we were learning. Um, and um, actually, sorry, one more slide over and then we'll show you the live video here and I'll, I'll walk you through what's going on. So you can go to the next slide, Ian. Play the video for us. So a little bit about the IoT devices at our properties. Um, what you're seeing on the wall right there is what's called an Aura Air. Uh, and an Aura Air is an IoT device, and then it also has uh, filtering at the edge. They have built-in uh, HEPA filters. So throughout our properties, we have the Aura Air technology and then also the senseware. And in this case, I'm hovering my phone over the Aura Air and, I, and I'm saying, hey, I wanna see um, humidity and I wanna see the historic humidity over this particular time period. Um, so I'm picking my start and end time. And you can see it's showing me that based on the data for that location in the digital twin, it's showing me that it's um, in the kind of appropriate range. Um, now, as I walk out of the uh, proximity of that sensor and into another, you can see it changes the, the value. So it's reading my location, it's reading the proximity, and then I'm able to cue it, you know, basically historic data from the um, from uh, the sensors themselves. So uh, really to kind of summarize um, where we're at is this project was really exploratory for us. Uh, we were able to do it kind of low cost because we did it through labs and we reused, kind of repurposed an, a, an existing platform um, and kind of gave us a hands-on, you know, test and trial with it. If Digital Twin does get um, you know, moved into a traditional project. A couple things that I would need to see is one, moving it from just a, uh, a tool that allows you to view data in a different way to a tool that's acting as almost a member of the team to, um, to, to do some of the prescriptive data work uh, where we can run simulations with other data sets to say, if we're bringing you know, X number of people in a particular space, how does the air quality, um, you know, impacted from that? What's the history of uh, work orders, like hot cold calls in this particular space? And you, this very, very smart digital twin, go tell us what to do or go make action to our BMS, something like that. Um, so again, we're, you know, we're not extremely advanced, we're familiar and we're off the ground. Uh, but again, this is all, you know, kind of very new and, and exploratory still at this stage. Awesome. Thanks, Aaron. I appreciate you going through that use case and I think super relevant from an employee comfort and wellness perspective, right? So so thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so I was going to I was going to add in a, 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 um, a vote for getting a lab set up because um, I think it, it was a, a very helpful a accelerator for trying new things that are maybe a little bit, you know, not necessarily fully baked, but B, it gives people the ability to kind of touch and feel things yeah. viscerally, which in real estate, I think is really important. It's a very visual, very visceral place. And the, the end users, so we set one up in and used our own buildings so that people could experience it um, through their own experience in the building. And then they could touch and feel it in the lab. And it just built a bit of comfort and a bit of trust and a bit of, oh, this is actually way really interesting. I can see where it goes. And so I'd echo 
anybody out there who's who's thinking about this, a lab where you can get people to get hands-on and touch and feel things, in addition to a lab conceptually where you can accelerate projects, um, all uh, very worthwhile. I appreciate you mentioning that, Dean. One other thing to add on the lab's approach is it's, yes, you're right, it started conceptually. We do have physical space now um, that we are, that we're building out in a touch and feel type of space, but also for our vendors, um, it's gonna prove as a showroom for prospective customers, for existing customers uh, to go through because, you know, we do a lot of work for corn shell and base building, but if a customer comes in, wants to lease space, and now they're concerned about air quality and IoT, uh, we have kind of a curated, you know, group of products that we vetted, we've tested, we know how to work with um, that, you know, we're going to be uh, basically making connections to our um, to our partners there. So Aaron, how do you staff the lab? Do you have like five really experienced technologists or is it just you or? Um... Yeah, so the the lab is fortunately one floor below uh, where our offices are. So it's going to be run by IT. Uh, and it's um, when it's completely so it, it's still actually the physical space is still in build out right now, but it'll be something that um, our like leasing and asset management team will be giving tours through with customers. Um, so it's not something that's like open to the general public that they could come in, uh, but it's staffed and supported by IT. Uh, but the consumer, I guess, of the uh, of the product down there is going to be um, leasing and asset management. Okay, so you don't have dedicated IT resources. You're sharing a slice of what you have. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So on the lab, the lab that we had at Oxford was um, was we, I had a digital buildings team inside my organization that was you know um, at the intersection between IT and OT. But then we actually very effectively hired a great co-op uh, student, and about that person lived eight months building out the uh, kind of all the tech under the supervision of the sort of leaders very uh effective use of a of a co-op and a summer student because there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of low-level work to do uh under the leadership of a of a person um and so i think it's it's a it's a great experience for them to kind of get in and also this part of the industry needs more young people to get excited about it because we actually have a talent deficit in the industry for people who know how to do that kind of at the intersection of digital um techniques and and classic real estate so by using the lab as a talent attractor and a talent developer. I think it's a, it's a really interesting application um, of the lab. So, yeah. yeah it, it feels I, like I it would the, best oh, serve to by not being restricted by the guardrails of traditional IT, right? Yeah. That way they're free to be innovative, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, we leveraged the lab concept at ExxonMobil pretty successfully, right? And I think from an internal controls perspective, we created our own emulated environments. We basically locked off an actual physical space from the rest of the campus, right? We, we created an, an, an innovation space where we could highlight new tech, bring in new vendors. They had different keys to the castle, so to speak. So from a risk mitigation perspective, you want to talk about speed to deploy, Aaron, you had mentioned that a couple of times, like you got to fail quickly and fail often, right? To kind of learn and move forward. So removing some of the bottlenecks in regards to um, some of the security risks and concern, I think was was critical to setting that up in like a big corporation. So if you're focused on internal innovation as opposed to selling stuff out to clients. Um, so we, we, we've taken some aspects of that concept into some of the work that we're doing at AECOM as well, right? And so we've created labs, innovation labs, technology labs within each of our different business lines. 
And now we're in the process of aligning with strategic partner universities, right? To kind of get access to that pipeline of talent, Don, that you had mentioned. So both kind of at the graduate level, smarty PhDs like Ali, right? That, if, that, are, that are looking to help kind of the industry move forward. But then also some of those younger kind of computer science type engineers that really come into that pure play data science play. So it's okay that they know nothing about the built environment. That's almost better, right? So you talked about those different kind of models, Ali. And then we've got access to operators and experts to provide that context to help train that model and increase the accuracy of that model within a real world environment, right? And we're also looking at bringing in technology partners as well. So it's kind of the holy trinity, if you will, of large engineering company, super smart pipeline of talent coming out of some key universities coupled with some strategic tech partners that are pure play tech outside of the hardware space right more on the software side and then those three together in a room can do some pretty interesting things right so awesome awesome i also liked what aaron said um charles maybe it's worth unpicking is about using um kind of digital twins as a um a partnering surface with vendors so you know sort of hey listen hey come in show us what you can do plug your tech into our twin and show us how it's accretive so, to what we're already doing which i think is super interesting well let's let's talk a little bit about that right because that was kind of one of the other areas that i wanted to cover for, for the panel and i think with the broader attendee group is the importance of platform right so so where have y'all kind of landed you know we obviously got ali and kind of the platform that they've built right um but where have you kind of landed from a platform perspective, right, for digital twin enablement? What's important to you and your teams in regards to selecting and identifying that platform? And, um, you know, from a use case delivery perspective, why is platform selection so critical early on in your digital twin journey? And we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and just kind of throw that out to the broader team and, and, and give everyone a chance to kind of to chime in. Um, Don, we didn't get a chance to hear from you on that first question. Would you like to kind of weigh in on the platform side? I know you're new in your role, but maybe during your time at, at Duke, because I know you guys have done a lot of stuff with AI as a service, right? So I view that as one of the Lego blocks that you want to plug into your, you know, you know, your your your, your castle, so to speak, right? Um, taking it old school on the Lego side, but yeah, I'd love to hear. And so so Duke was a pure play industrial, large warehouses, so. You know, the idea of digital twins every time we looked at it was 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 a little harder to justify because the buildings are simple, right? The systems are simple. Uh, there's just not much there to, um, you know, digitize. Um, but some of the stuff we've done um, to, to focus on AI as a service, if you will, was to think about how we can use the um, sort of the simpler version of AI to um, make a process better, easier, quicker, more efficient, uh, cost less. Um, so if, if you think about a lot of the artifacts, which is where we started, that might be within a process, such as setting up a new company. We said, well, you know, we, we have a form today. We make someone fill out a form and they get information from two or three different sources. And then we go to a, a website to do a, an OFAC check, um, which is, you know, standard procedure for, I think that's a terrorism check or something from September 11th days. Um, we said, you know, let, let's flip some of these things around and let's start with this artifact because the AI um, engines have gotten really good at scraping data off of documents, artifacts. Um, so we, we set up a process to start our vendor setup off of a W9. 
said, um, and it worked really well when they were hand typed. Uh, some of the handwritten versions were a little bit more difficult, but we found that most of what we had was was a typed W9. It was a system produced W9 of some sort. And um, we scraped the data off of that, and then you had the tax ID number on the W9, then you can go automate with RPA, robotic process automation, the uh, OFAC check. Um, and after you get through that, and then you can go out and find the contact information uh, about that vendor, probably from public sources, um, and automatically set up that vendor in your backend system, which was Yardi at the time, um, with very little touch. Um, so that was that was in testing mode when the acquisition of Prologis happened. Um, but we did roll out uh, a very uh, a simple model for uh, our invoice processing to do something similar. We started with the artifact, it's an invoice, right? Um, there are a lot of tools out there that already train the models for you. So you can take that existing model and plug it into your process. So we were getting about an 85% hit rate of no touch on all the data elements in an invoice. Um, to push it into our workflow approval process, which, you know, that dramatically simplified um, that, that business process for our company and allowed us to save a lot of money on, um, on staff that was coming and going a lot. You know, that level of staff kind of, was kind of harder for us to find. Um, but we did that, and then we did some really interesting experiments around um, industrial buildings. So if you think about an industrial building and what the major risk points are, um, you know, the roof is a, is very big and it's very expensive. Um, so that's one area. The parking lot uh, is another area that can be expensive to maintain. And the HVAC units. So we brainstormed about that a little bit. And you said, you know what? You know, we have roof leaks. You know, roof leaks are expensive and inconvenient to our customers. And it's, it's, um, it's not a good thing. So let's, you know, could, it, could we build a machine learning model to try and predict roof leaks? It's like, I have no idea, you know, it's like an innovation lab thing. Let's just give it a shot, right? So we took Azure Machine Learning, uh, which is actually pretty easy to use from a default basics level. It's not nearly uh, as complicated as you can get um, with some of these things. And we, we went and grabbed historical weather data for two cities. I think we used Dallas and Chicago, where we had properties. And we grabbed data like, um, you know, wind speed, wind direction, temperature, uh, precipitation from that day, um, uh, snow, uh, snowpack, you know, how, how deep was the snowpack, you know, Chicago, right, snow. Um, and when, when we took a look at our historical work order data from those portfolios over time and specifically looking at the roof leaks. And then we looked at building characteristics, you know, how big was the building, how big was the roof footprint? what type of roof material was used, um, um, how old was the roof, how old was the building, you know, and, and we fed all these things in the model and we, we never really finished it, but it was really interesting to, to sort of dig into, you know, the prospect of some of these tool sets that have gotten so much easier to use for, from a novice perspective to try and add business value, right? Because that's the name of the game. We're trying to add value to our business models um, for the least complexity and lowest cost. Um, yeah. So I don't know, those are some really interesting examples of, of where we deployed um, AI or machine learning to, to add value to the, to the business model. And I plan on, on doing those sorts of things here in this new role here at Thompson Thrift. So. Awesome. No, thanks, Don. And I guess the way tying it back to kind of digital twins, I, I think, you know, I think most people, when they think about a digital twin, it's very operational focused, right? User centric, right? Like, 
very much focused on efficiencies and operations, energy consumption, asset integrity, right? But you just hit on some very transactional type things that I think through the application of AI or ML can actually help drive efficiency within a digital twin, right? So back to Aaron's point, he wants the digital twin to be to act more like an ecosystem, right? Compiling data sources from multiple places to deliver on workflows that span traditionally siloed applications, right? So your OCR example was, was interesting, Don, right? So imagine, right, a lot of the, um, so I, I, my head goes to P&ID diagrams, right? Like within, a, within an industrial settings, like at ExxonMobil, right? Being able to go in and OCR all of that, all of those P&ID diagrams and actually create a digital representation of the model. And a lot of the attributes on those P&ID diagrams, like, you know, the asset details, those types of things, they're all in the same place, right? It would take forever to kind of pull that information out and kind of load it down um, into, into a traditional database, right? So I, I just, that's where my head goes with kind of that application. You also mentioned kind of the invoicing process, right? So imagine as part of the digital twin, right? There's a, there's, you know, Aaron was talking about some of the, the sensors, right? There's an issue with humidity. We trace that back to, you know, a, a component of the HVAC system, right? It is faulty. That then triggers a work order, right? And then once that work order is completed, that triggers the invoicing to that contractor, right? To issue payment, right? For the work that was completed. Because you go back to some of these big organizations and, you know, financial admin is nothing sexy. You, you wouldn't think that it necessarily has anything to do with a digital twin, but being able to leverage that type of technology to drive back, back a house type functions and add efficiencies on top of those traditionally operational driven use cases just means that value prop goes higher. And if you talk to your CFO and it's like, yeah, hey, I can reduce finance overhead costs by 35%. How are you yeah. going to do this? We're talking about a digital twin. We're talking about operations. Well, let me show you how, right? So it's just, it, it's great to kind of hear these these different opportunities and capabilities, right? That, that could all come together. Yeah, we did the same thing with deal memos for uh, real estate deals. Those things are a pain in the butt to sift through. Extracted all the data and put it in a database. Now you can get to the underwriting process more quickly and maybe get the deal before somebody else does. So. Yep, that was spot on. Yeah, I'll, go, I'll uh, build on your points, Charles, on, on using the digital twins for slightly different use cases. So one that uh, interests me, I'm not sure anybody's really done it yet, but when I started to explore the, the delivery of the product of real estate into the customer, I realized that, you know, there's, there's sort of what happens in the building mechanically and sort of operationally, but I haven't seen really anybody start to weave the vendor community that actually hydrates the asset and turns it into a living, breathing experience for the customer into the twin. So this is the simplest one during COVID for me was, um, you know, the, the janitorial vendors would come and say, okay, now we're going to charge you more for enhanced cleaning. And I was scratching my head going, how do we know that you're doing the non-enhanced cleaning in the first place? And it'd be really nice to actually have kind of really clear performance data from the the service providers in the building whether it's janitorial whether it's the you know um the engineering side to actually tie the vendors the systems all into a place where i could actually get an understanding of how the customer then perceives um the the product of real estate elevators started to do this very interestingly there's a company called we maintain out of france that's doing a very interesting thing bringing kind of the elevator uh, experience into more of a twin concept. And I, I think that's where we've got to go is 
how do we start to think about the customer in this and not you know not necessarily just the operators but how do we bring all this stuff to deliver almost a digital amenity um kind of set of services to the customer so they can experience the building um and all the services that ultimately deliver that product and experience to them awesome no thanks dean appreciate that ali how about from your perspective right what are what are some of the guiding principles of the prescriptive data platform, um, both from a use case enablement perspective, an interoperability perspective, and I would think kind of a model management perspective, right? Would you mind sharing some of those for, for the audience? Yeah, when I'm uh, when I'm asked about like prescriptive data or Nantum OS, I always uh, define it as like uh, two different uh, um, product. The first product is like a secure, robust, and uh, um, reliable platform. Uh, for to uh, run ML and AI uh, on, on that. It, it, it provides like a, a platform that we can run different application and uh, different optimization. So it pro we, we provide this platform to um, um, different um, companies, different research centers. So most of the people, including me, that we are developing artificial intelligence uh, application uh, ml tools we don't really don't want we don't want to be involved in uh, data gathering data cleaning we just want to have a clean database to and a platform that we can run our application provide some uh, like um, some services to the building and look at our uh, our uh, uh, the behavior of our application so nantum provide that kind that type of platform and Going back to the things that uh, you mentioned about the lab, we used that platform uh, in the, uh, pre uh, the summer. We invited uh, two interns, from uh, two uh, PhD students. They were here, they, uh, they used the platform to develop uh, two different application, AI application. One was related to indoor, uh, indoor wellness quality, and one of them was related to greenhouse gas emissions. So it was like a, uh, the platform that they can use uh, uh, to implement the, the knowledge that they learn in university and uh, and look at what what would be the positive impact that they can have on the building. And for us, for my team as a research team, we are using the same platform and uh, using AI technology in different format and uh, uh, to provide those uh, use cases. And um, and uh, for maintaining of the model that you mentioned, of course, uh, pandemic. Uh, was the important thing for us. We understood that most of the models are not going to be accurate most of the time. And uh, the data changed a lot. Occupancy data changed a lot. Uh, pattern of the usage uh, changed a lot. So uh, in the first week of pandemic, most of our models wouldn't behave uh, normally. We had a very high level of error. But uh, that was the uh, test for all of us. Uh, and um, how we can maintain, how we can retrain our model fully automated way. So if you wouldn't uh, uh, develop a platform that all of our model uh, 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 retrain automatically, we would, in, we would be in huge trouble. We had to go back, update, retrain all of our models. So what we developed in Anthem, uh, we, uh, when we see some, uh, the distribution of the data is changing in the, in the building, our model understand that, oh, the level of the error in our model is getting higher. So it's more than threshold. And so we need to retrain all of our models. So this could happen every day when uh, the things that we observed during the pandemic. So 
the occupancy was changing due every from one day to another day, or it could be uh, this uh, retraining of the model could happen every season or every month. So, yeah. but we are actively uh, looking at the changes in distribution of the data that we are getting from the building to make a decision about retraining of uh, our model. So what we call adaptive uh, modeling technology that we are using in Nanto. Yeah, no, and, and Ali, that's, it's good that, that you over at Prescriptive Data are kind of thinking about that, right? For this to work at scale, you know, from an AI ML perspective, there has to be an autonomous approach to model management, managing model shift, right? And then you also hit on a couple points you made were geared towards the quality of the data, the timeliness of the data, the accuracy of the data, those types of things, right? So I guess another question I'd like to kind of pose to the panel you know, and I think something that we struggled with over at ExxonMobil and, and something that I've been thinking about a lot over at AECOM as we're pulling together an offering around digital twins is um, model man or digital twin data management, upkeep, maintenance, right? I think one of the things that, you know, and not present company included, right? But, you know, like sitting on the client side for such a long time, being sold kind of a platform, a product, a suite of technologies and a cost to implement, I don't think the cost was really ever mentioned or discussed is, is in regards to maintaining the fidelity of that of that digital twin over time, right? And I know that a lot of the different trades manage updates in a very different way, and I really haven't seen a product come to market yet, right, that focuses on that end user, that operator, that technician, that electrical engineer, that when something in the built environment changes, and that update to the digital twin has to happen, that it can be done easily, right? Because there could be changes in manufacture, there could be changes in the type of equipment, there could be a different asset type, I mean, within a same kind of family, right? It could have slightly different set points. So everything that those models and the predictive analytics are kind of built on within that digital twin, like there's a significant chance that there, there could be an impact, right? So curious, cross, cross kind of the group, have you all kind of, had those discussions? Is that something that you guys have been thinking about? Um, is it something that um, you know should be on the radar of folks on the call? And I'll, I'll open it up to whoever wants to kind of ask that, answer that question. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll just add one final thought to the platform conversation because I, I wanted to get it in and then I'll, I'll give share some thoughts on the, on the second question. So just to end up on the platform side, one of the things that was really important that I hope everybody's thinking about out there is that if you think about a, the digital twins around a building, and let's say it's a digital twin with various instances, I, we thought about that as very much accretive to the value of the building, which you and I, Charles, have had conversations before about a digital twin adds value to the asset. So it, it's maybe a few basis points, but it adds value to the asset. So, but assets trade, right? Owners don't always own the assets forever. So one of the really important things about choosing a platform is that that platform uh, can be unplugged and sold to the new owner and the new owner doesn't have to rebuild it from scratch. Um, that they actually, you can unplug all of the technologies that make it happen, which is by not trivial if you've done it in the cloud and you've done it on common instances. So you actually have to think about that going in. If you don't design the platform or don't select the platform right so that you can actually unplug the whole thing and allow the, the new owner to take advantage of it, it isn't valuable anymore. It's actually the opposite. It can be a, a tax on the value of the asset. So, so think about that from very much from the beginning. 
And this is where I think the industry and the maturity of the products comes uh, needs to move, right? Which is, we also decided it needs to be very open. Um, it, you know, the standards need to be not proprietary, not closed, and where possible. You know, this is why things like, um, you know, BRICS and, and some of the other uh, standards coming together and saying we're actually going to interoperate are healthy things for the industry because now if you trade it and you send it to a new owner, yeah. they can actually plug it into something that you have no idea what it is and it can be very open. Um, and so I think the openness and the pluggability um, are two really important selection criteria for when you build this out so that the assets can be enhanced in value by your by your twin and all the technologies related to it. So that's sort of thoughts to, to contemplate as yeah, you're- Yeah, no, appreciate, appreciate that, Dean. Um, to, so, so Aaron, you gave us a really good example of kind of your digital twin pilot, right? And you talked about bringing in the heavy duty LiDAR camera, talking about point cloud ingestion, building kind of the virtual representation of the model, right? Throwing some data on top of it. Um, as you kind of think about kind of next steps in regards to scaling, like have you guys put any thought into how you're gonna add a ton of point cloud data? How are you gonna manage all of that? Like, is, is that the right approach? Like maybe maybe kind of share a little bit around what, what would be next for car properties based on kind of the sure. market, right? Um, so with uh, Dean's comments, um, uh, reminded me of, of one uh, kind of strategy that we used as we did our um, digital twin pilot. And it's um, it really is in the theme of, um, you know, transition, interoperability and platform. So with really with any of our data sets, we follow this method to decouple data from platform. And we've always done this with analytics and BI. Like we never keep all of our analytics data in the BI tool. We have a separate data repository that then the new BI tool taps into. And we've always done it that way because we never want to be hamstrung to the latest and greatest BI tool that tomorrow is not going to be the best, latest and greatest. So we've been through a few BI tools and sort of learned to not, you know, to not do that. You need to decouple. With the digital twin, did the same thing. You know, once we got the scan with the LiDAR camera, we got the asset files and we store the asset files separately then kind of runs on the platform because i don't want to be hamstrung by the growth of the resini platform i want to be able to if you know use my scan and then use my point cloud data with my scan on the next best platform or in a new product that comes out that can potentially consume all this and provide me some you know better ml output um, so decoupled has always been the best way to do it. Um, it's a little more effort when you, you know, start up a new project that things have to be brought back together. Um, however, that has been, you know, what's provided us the most flexibility. Um, you know, really in terms, in terms of what's next, uh, I have to look at this from a, you know, what's right for the, the big data initiatives and the data strategy. And not only on the you know digital twin visualization that's a beneficiary of our big data uh, approach um so i'm going to answer the question really more so on the big data side and it's um it really comes down to you know automation and then understanding you know prescription of, of data for the data to start um you know answering some some questions and not just be forward looking so we've tried this in a few different capacities. I'll, I'll give you one example that we were talking about on our pre-call using the natural language processing um, of our work orders. That was you know, kind of cool. Um, we ran, again, in the labs, in, in the pilot, what we did is we took all of our 
uh, all of our work orders, which were through a variety of different facility management systems, and fed them into an engine to tell us using natural language process of the way people type out the description, how satisfied or unsatisfied they were. And it looked in, and it wasn't all that complicated once you dug into it, it looked at you know, the use of certain keywords, whether you know, people were submitting the same work orders using the repeat, you know, repeat words, like for example, it's cold in my office again. Like something like that would get escalated as you know as an unkind response, um, or it would measure the kind of the, the barometer of people's tones. Like it smells awful in here, and like in all caps, you know, awful would be displayed uh, out. So um, you know, and as a company that manages hundreds and thousands of work orders a month, it gave us sort of a lens of customer satisfaction, and we wrote some simple logic and um, some scripting to do ticket escalations. So when management was meeting with teams, they would review the escalated tickets and be able to kind of troubleshoot issues a, a bit better. Um, so where this is going, I think more of the you know, machine learning prescription on the, uh, the data that we have in place itself. Um, and additionally, the world of IoT, we're just scratching the surface on. So we're doing air quality measurement now. Uh, I think understanding the environments uh, that our customers work in and sensing those is going to be um, is going to be key. I mean, we're um, we're now taking the the next IoT project is uh, involving PoE lighting uh, and some other things that are all going to feed back into the base um, data layer and uh, and in the future be a beneficiary to the digital twin. Awesome. Charles, I'll add on to what you, you were saying about, you know, whose job it is, is it to maintain this stuff? Um, and, and if you don't think about that going in, you will, you know, have a lot of costs and a lot of challenges in the future. So it isn't just a once and done thing you've got to design to operate. And this is where I think the industry has to sort of evolve a little bit, which is there are some jobs at the coal face in the, in the buildings that have to evolve, right? They're, they're, you know, carrying a wrench around is really important, but ultimately the digital version of the wrench is going to have to sort of make its way into the into the, the property teams um, so that they take responsibility as data stewards at the front lines of the building. And, and so data governance, the role evolving and pushing out to the front lines and having some the next generation of people coming up as building engineers and and digital stewards at the at, at the front line of, of operating buildings is going to have to be a conversation we have uh, and trying to figure out how we get young engineers really excited about that. Because I think they're yeah. graduating at a university and, yeah. and colleges thinking they're going to use digital tools and then they get into the buildings and they find that's not the case. And so I think there's a real opportunity here to attract the right people into the into the industry by actually redefining some of those roles. And, and that would be very, um, uh, I think for the forward thinking groups who are listening, that's a real opportunity because I don't know that that many people are actually doing that yet. Some people are doing it of their own accord. Like we found, we went out to some malls on the West Coast that there were some people who were quite digitally forward thinking of their own accord and they were doing it um, without actually being asked to do it. So it was sort of organically happening, but I think there's a real structured way and a more, more industry centric way to sort of make that uh, a good thing and start advocating for it so that when we release technologies, it isn't the, the tech guys that are actually having to keep it alive because that's not going to work for very long yeah. you actually need the you need the end users to take real ownership of it and it needs to be built in such a way that they can do that do it easily right i guess 
the only reason I, I, I asked is that we went through a period in, in a previous company where we were struggling to even get our technicians to put the asset ID on the work order, right? So if you aren't tagging the asset to the work order, like on, on demand work, I mean, how are you going to go back and mine that data, right? I mean, one of the biggest challenges is actually even just how all the buildings are commissioned digitally, right? They're all commissioned differently. They're all snowflakes. And so one of the things we found before we start getting into exciting things like digital twins and, and AI and things like that is we actually have to do really below grade work um, on the infrastructure of the buildings, even putting in building networks, reprovisioning the buildings to get some standards so that how we naming standards mentions you know, all your endpoints and things were in the wrong spot you know it's like oh i thought this was on the fourth floor but it's really on it's in the below grade so yeah there's some hard hard problems to solve that require some very let's say less sexy work that actually will then um enable all of the sexier work to have some value but don't go in thinking you can start with the shiny object. You actually have to start with the less shiny object first in order and crawl, walk, and run before you're gonna get some value. And that's where you can bring the building teams along for the ride and get them really involved and excited about it because they can help. We saw cybersecurity had a huge, uh, by, by embracing cybersecurity and rolling out a much more comprehensive cybersecurity program, we really won the hearts and minds of the building teams, which then allowed us to then introduce digital building capabilities in while we'd solve some fundamental problems on cybersecurity. So I think don't be afraid to sort of look under the covers and make sure your infrastructure is ready for the stuff before you even start. Yeah. So we so we we talked a lot about kind of stakeholders engaging people. Um, kind of wanna wanna pose the panel and and John, we can start with you. If you were gonna have and you each have respective areas of focus, right? So I know you're you're heavy on kind of the AI ML space. If you had a dream team, right? And you were going to do this at scale across your new organization, right? No limits. You had you had a, a bunch of unicorns. What would your dream team look like to go kind of change the world in your new role from an AI perspective? What types of people would you want on the team? And then you could have vendors, you could have subs, whatever it may be. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'd want a diversified skill set for sure, um, and I'd want excited people, right? If if they weren't sort of excited and engaged in the process, and that more depends on the person, maybe more than the skill set. Um, <clears throat> but certainly, you know, folks that understand the business, the business processes, the business needs. Um, you know, that's that's a number one because if you don't have that, your solution won't probably be. A, a big hit and add value for your your organization, um, and then it probably depends on how deep you need to go. You know, are you going to keep it light with some of these AI as a service offerings, or or do you really need to go deep um, with um, you know some of these tools? You you might need to go as deep as a data scientist type role. Those are really hard to find, like really hard. Um, so you're probably going to have to outsource that. So. So yeah, so definitely a mix of skill sets that are motivated um, with well-defined goals um, and uh, a, a, a mix, a general mix of um, of uh, skill sets. So. Awesome, thanks, Don. Aaron, we'll we'll same question over to you, but more so on the on the innovation side. What you it sounds like you got a dream team already. So if wow. you can make that dream team bigger. Yeah. Um, I'll echo one of the comments earlier said is there is a certainly a talent shortage um, of engaged um, and 
deep subject matter experts uh, in the industry. So um, definitely I would follow Don's lead. You want a team that's diversified so you can adapt. I mean, that's the, that's the key here. Today we're working on, you know, big data, data science, doing, you know, implementations with data. And tomorrow it's going to be something different. I mean, you need to, uh, if you want to stay on the innovation front, you need people that are going to be excited about new challenges and willing willing to learn because the skill set that you're hiring today is not going to be the skill set that you need in a year or two years, uh, which poses a you know challenge for all industries. But I think even more so with um, commercial real estate that is is not necessarily the um, you know the first industry that you know the the top comp sci graduates are going into. Um, so. Uh, you know, from our perspective, um, we're seeing that, you know, new people that join the team are joining as contract roles or we're doing um, we're finding people with the right attitude and some, you know, base technical chops and then uh, training them. So, um, yeah, but it's it's not easy out there. Awesome. Yeah, looking under some rocks might not be a bad idea, I think. So some, some of the best folks I've had over the years have been like school teach. One gal was a school teacher, had a couple admin assistants. Um, so, you know, looking under rocks for the right talent and the right mentality. So, Ali, how about yourself? Like, if you come into a new client, right, you're getting ready to deploy the platform, like, what would be your recommendation to that client to have on the client side, right, to, to support the efforts? What would that team look like? My team or their team? <laughs> the, the client side, on the client side. And then you could share your team as well, because if someone yeah. wants to invest in that capability in house, but I'm I have a very Probably interesting lift, right? Let's just start from my team. Uh, so my team is like a combination of uh, computer scientists and mechanical engineers. So computer scientists, they are like a data scientists. They are very good uh, in uh, developing uh, the uh, uh, software. And uh, they know statistics very well, all of those statistics, all of those mathematical things. But they are mostly in computer science part. Part of my team is a mechanical engineer. They are very, very. They have a very good understanding about the building, building energy, and uh, mathematical optimization, artificial intelligence, and then combination of these two uh, help us to provide a lot of tools that uh, it's not it's not only good in like a theory, so it's it's very good and uh, easy to be implemented. And um, yeah, that's my thing about the uh, client team. I think. Uh, it's hard for me to talk about that. And uh, I didn't have that much experience of working with clients. Most of them, like, uh, if they have a good understanding of uh, technology, it's it's much easier to work with them. And uh, But what I saw in the industry, most of them are very good. Uh, very, they have a very good understanding of um, building energy, but very little understanding about AI and data science and what is kind of this technology can help and uh so they it is very hard for them to uh, see the positive impact of ai ai is nothing more than uh uh having better decisions most of our technology it was like a one example we develop a heating system optimization by uh, only monitoring what engineers in the building they, they were doing. So we monitor what they were practicing 
and selected they, their best practice and developed model around that, and we defined a new artificial intelligence. So we are the AI is only trying to provide a lot of this uh, good decision and with minimum error. So human, uh, eighty percent of the time, it has a, a neural network to uh, provide a very good decision, but that twenty percent ended up to be a bad decision. Artificial intelligence is helping us uh, to have 100% of the time being a good, uh, being a better decision, and also train over the time to make it even better when more data is available. Awesome, thanks, Ali. And Dean, we'll we'll finish up with you. And I know I know we've got some questions, and we've got about 10 minutes left on the on the panel, so I want to make sure that we have time to to answer some of the questions posed by the attendees. Sure, I'll, I'll just I'll just add a couple of roles in there that I think are are pretty impactful. So um, I, I echo the notion of having a combination of engineering um, people who really deeply understand the operations of the building and technologists who can sort of marry uh, technology up. It means that the engineers have got to be open-minded and actually quite tolerant of new ways of doing things. So you got to find uh, an engineer who really knows a building well, but he's able to step back and think more broadly about things. One of the roles that I think is really critical is, is sort of a teacher slash coach, where when we're implementing things, there's a lot of questions, a lot of teaching, a lot of force multiplication that has to happen across the, the large uh, organization. And if you have somebody in there who can kind of very patiently and very carefully take the people, run them up through you know how things work, show that how how it makes their lives better. I think you know that that kind of coaching and teaching person is is essential. In a we kind of favor a, a center of excellence model with federation of execution, right? So the center of excellence has the teachers and coaches. It has the one-time project builders. It has the kind of true knowledge keepers of all the depth of knowledge. But ultimately, their job is to make the organization able to ingest and absorb and use the platform. So you have to have this coaching and service um, mentality. And so that, that's a, um, a huge part of the role. And then there's a really interesting one that started to emerge as you have a digital fabric over top of your estate, which was instead of having lots and lots of operation centers, like one per building, which seems to be the way that the industry works right now, having actually some folks who are watching the entire apparatus and looking for um, signal where there's, hey, listen, something's going on in that building that maybe the local operators aren't, aren't, aren't aware of because they're not seeing the, the aggregation of all the signal, who can then call the operator and go, something's happening until we have closed loop control. They, they're literally flight control people sort of looking and seeing across the whole picture. Now this started 10 years for me when we were doing um, all the data centers at Thomson Reuters, we, we ran 350 data centers around the world from two locations because we could see everything that was going on and we could go to an operator, something's going on in aisle three, cabinet four, you should go check it out and we could do it from, from one place. I think that's an, a role that will start to emerge is yeah. this sort of center of, of thinking that can kind of dispatch and help the, the buildings become more effective. Mm -hmm. Ultimately with AI models and things, those roles, may get heavily augmented or replaced, but it's sort of a DevOps type role. You're sort of watching and scripting themselves out of a job every day. No, that great, great ads. And I think <clears throat> I can add, I think a couple that maybe weren't covered. So I, I think you talked about coaching, training, 
et cetera, Dean. I think if you're talking about deploying, you know, digital twin AI across a large, large organization, an adoption leader, right? Someone whose primary goal and role is to focus on scale, right? And working with those different sites, those different assets within the portfolio to ensure application of built, deployed, and tested products, right? So I think you need someone solely focused on adoption to maximize that return on investment to help kind of the C-suite see that there's penetration in, across the entire portfolio. And I also think that from a, a product management perspective, right, as these products come out of a lab and they maturate and become industrialized, right, I think that there needs to be a, an assigned product owner that manages kind of the life cycle of said product, right? So we've seen a bunch of different use cases on the call today. I think maybe from an AI ML model perspective, there's a product manager that sits over a suite of models that deliver on an intended outcome in a specific grouped area. But Aaron's example with kind of the digital twin and the wayfinding app and the sensor-based app, right, to look at humidity, again, that may tie under a comfort product manager who manages four or five discrete use cases, applications, all geared to, right? And then they work in concert with the adoption manager. And then I think there needs to be like a value capture kind of benefits owner, right? Don't know what that like chief moneymaker or something, right? I, I don't know what we call that individual, but working in concert with the adoption manager to ensure that efficiencies are captured and, and realized and accounted for. And, you know, being able to sell that story back into the C-suite to garner additional investment, right? So those would be my, my ads on top of some, some already great input. So we've got about five minutes left. Um, I'm going to scroll through some of the questions here. Um, so Linda Koa asked, you know, given the, given the move towards digital twins over the next several years, do we see CMMS still having a place to play in large organizations? and I'll, I'll turn it over to the panel. Maybe we'll take two responses and then hop to the next question. I'll quickly jump in. I, I don't see Digital Twin working without uh, a complete facility management system. I mean, it's it's definitely not a replacement. It's a, it is a beneficiary of uh, facility management data for right. me. It has to be. Yeah, no one's going to want to recreate a CMMS or a IWMS system. We right. might see CMMSs get better, which would yeah. be great. Right. <laughs> um, and they'll play nicer with other sources of data, but they, they're an essential feeder system into, into that for sure. All right. So next question from Nikki Stewart. So great discussion. Vendor here. Curious if you are capturing any data that pertains to janitorial vendor partners who service the properties, and does that data help guide decisions regarding service needs? So I think to this is to the earlier case that you presented, Dean, around yeah. COVID-type, like super uber cleaning versus like your traditional normal cleaning. I've only seen one group that actually, um, it, it was more on the facilities management, less on the building kind of corn shelf guys, but they, they had put QR codes on, on every single workstation. And as the janitors went around, they sort of clicked and sort of, you could get route analysis and time between stations. And so you could actually get some telemetry out of it, but it was, it's few and far between. And I think all of the vendors who service buildings are gonna have to become much better at producing digital um, telemetry from their service 
And yeah. I, I think janitorial is the most obvious one, but I, I don't see we, it happening yet or widely. We we did something like that at ExxonMobil in, in my previous role, right? Because we were looking at the frequency of cleaning and we were trying to move more towards a occupancy utilization-based service delivery model, right? So if we've got 23 buildings on campus and you know 12 of them are 90% utilized and the other 15 are like 20% utilized, why are we paying the same allocated costs to clean each building even though there's such a large difference in utilization? It makes like zero sense, right? So I think you're right large owner operators, right, that, that manage a suite or portfolio of assets, service-based delivery models, like that, then that becomes critical and important. Um, yeah. The large scale service providers, the JLLs and the CBs and, and uh, you know, those, they got up their game a lot in this front because there's, there's a lot of, um, a lot of uh, ground to cover on the provision of service. And they're at the front lines of this. They do it for thousands, millions of buildings. We got to see them kind of get a little bit better at this to help us. Chuck's back. We're in trouble now. Uh oh, you are in trouble. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm looking at a nice job, Charles. Uh, I, I'm looking over your list of questions we were hoping to get to, and I think you covered about 20% of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so maybe we'll have to all come back and do this again. Uh, when we, I'm creating the next schedule for next year. Uh, great discussion. It's just going to continue to get more complicated. So I, I think you guys bring a lot of value to the table. Thanks also, Don and and Dean for jumping in. You know, on your in your new roles. Uh, wish you the best of luck at your at your new uh, group. Uh, Ali, thank you for uh, making the complex seem a little bit more understandable. So I do that. Aaron, I think. Uh, Car Properties is a, is definitely a leader in the industry, and uh, always a pleasure to have you guys on the on the program. So, I uh, really do appreciate it. So, uh, for our uh, uh, for our our listeners, whether you've joined us live or you're just watching this as a recording, thank you for tuning in, and 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 thank you for all those questions that came in. Uh, it, it, when you're when you're part of it, it really makes a big difference. So, uh, I also want to uh, remind you to register for our December series. We're taking November off. Uh, it's focused primarily on core tech. Uh, you can see a lot of the people that you saw in this webinar are probably at core tech. Um, but the uh, the next one will be on December 1st, and that's part of our CRE Tech Innovation Outlook series, uh, Workplace and Experiences. Uh, we've got a great group lined up for that one. Um, and that'll be followed by our real estate automation tech on December the 8th. Uh, also, another great panel forming up on that one. We've got some surprise guests. That's what that third slot's for. Uh, and they're just about locked in. So uh, you'll have to tune into that one to see who it is. Uh, and also, if you happen to be in the San Jose area, I certainly would like you to join us. Uh, check out the registration for Cortec. I've seen the program. I've seen the uh, the agenda and the topics. Fascinating. Um, Charles, I think you're you're speaking there. We didn't give away the, uh, the 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 surprises that you'll be bringing to that one. So thank you all again. Uh, th and again, thank you for the for the live audience. Thank you for those who are RealCom followers. And uh, that's it for us today. We're out of time, and we do wish you well. Be safe, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks all. Thanks to the panel. Thank you.